We're WSA, and we are in the business of designing environments that work. We create workplaces for all sorts of people, and we've always learned a lot by listening. Why? Because architects who listen are people who design, really design, for others, for everyone, and for all of us. This podcast is about what designers hear when they listen carefully to what people want and what people need. Welcome to Workplace Crafted. Welcome to Workplace Crafted. This is the first in a series of podcasts that we're going to be holding here over the next few months. Our hope is that we can explore the future of the workplace. Today, in order to begin the conversation and talk about it more broadly, I've invited Ryan Gann to be with us. Thanks so much for having me, Tim. So Ryan, what is it that you do? I am a architect and design strategist working with companies to become better versions of themselves through design, culture, and business prosperity. So you have an understanding of the history of design, and you're kind of struggling through where we are now and looking at the future of design. Totally. And I think it's sort of interesting. The pandemic, COVID-19, has taught us a lot. It forced us to sort of exist in a new framework without much understanding of how to get to that framework. So it's interesting to look to where we are, but also interesting to sort of compare to where we've been and see where the pendulum swings in the process. The difference is this time everybody knows we're in a different place. That's true. I mean, we were all forced to sort of do the same thing at the same time, which is rare and quite frankly hasn't happened in anyone's lifetime. Right. So there's this big event that occurred that was monumental and it's changed perspectives for everyone. And it's universal. It's not just in Chicago. It's not just in Columbus. It's universal. Yeah. And you can't go back. Like we can't undo what has been done at this point in time. And the expectations change. I think that that's sort of interesting now. We all were forced to evolve. And now there's a sort of a new expectation going into the future from future generations that are entering the workforce and certainly people that are already in the workforce. Do you think there are people who will want to go back or think we should go back? Oh, totally. They're out there. Definitely. But I think if you're going to look at where innovation thrives, where business thrives, and how you tie those two things together, I'm not sure that you can go back. Yeah, I think it's always a constant evolution. Interestingly, as we prepared for our session today, you and I were looking at the history of the workplace. And I've always been interested in the vacillation between individual ideas or unique ideas and innovation and the critical whole, you know, the mass. How do we make something that's universally appealing? It seems to me like we're entering a moment where we want to have both of those things occurring. So I tuned into Flex, the program that WSA did at the height of the pandemic, which talks about the history of the office and talks about this interesting evolution over the course of 120 years and where we find ourselves today. So back to that pendulum shift, we look back at the 1900s and Taylorism. You're probably more well-versed in sort of the historical perspectives of that, but it's this difference between open office and private office, open office being where 95% of the employees were squeezed side by side, loud typewriters in one giant hall. That was what office as a new term of work was. Yeah, and it was only able to be done because of advances in design and manufacturing. So long span beams made out of steel were able to allow the open office to occur. 
prior to that, you had the Monadnock building where it was a bearing building where you could only have minimal spans and it's primarily offices or a series of offices that are separated by a corridor. So you get the examples of like Frank Lloyd Wright's Johnson Wax and other types of office space where you had free span and you had the ability for people to be congregated in secretarial pools or administrative areas. And there were challenges with that. Acoustics was a big one. So you don't remember, but in, I do. <laughs> in, the, in the old days, we had typewriters, and it was really loud. You, you know, you might watch a film of a broadcast setting or a, a newspaper and the loud typewriters in the background. So acoustics was a really big part of that. And we continue to evolve and learn how we can solve that. You had Herman Miller in 1970, 60, 70, beginning to explore action office, this solution to provide partitions between individual desks where people were able to actually have some acoustical privacy. And that was developed totally because of the sound of the typewriter. Right, and if you oscillate between history, those comments about noise, comfort, thermal, or audible, totally the same conversation and the criticism that people had to the open office of the 2010s and the early aughts, right? Yeah. But then you sort of think back to Mad Men or a lot of this era of the 70s of complete isolation and separation of dull, of individualism. Yeah. And this sort of lack of collaboration. Right. And to me, if you begin to think about this economically, as a capitalist society, businesses, organizations, manufacturers are leveraging large sales of, in volume. So the furniture manufacturing groups basically created universal solutions that they would profess to be the truth. This is the next office. This is the design for the next office. And that's actually how the merchandise mart here in Chicago was developed. And the Neocon show that annually occurs was the release of new product. That was the universal truth at that time for what we should be providing. And what happened was our industry was kind of funded and underwritten by this idea of volume sales. Everyone had the same access to a certain level of quality. So if you were an owner of a business and a facilities manager, you could provide equivalent access and quality to all of your workers. And that was very important in order to provide equitable treatment of your associates. It's incredibly scalable, essentially. Yes, totally. And what comes from that sort of an environment too, though, is this predictability and this well-researched and well-designed series of solutions. But as the pendulum swings into that direction of hyper-standardization, it goes too far. Right. And that's sort of where we enter then into the 90s, where we're like, mm, not really working anymore for us. However, I would suggest that we just completely flipped the script. So what we did was we said... The cube's not working, so let's just convert to benching. So we're going to get rid of the walls, and we're going to create these hyper-collaborative spaces that will help reinforce 
collaboration and drive efficiencies and training and mentoring to occur. And the response to that was not positive either. Right. Well, essentially, benching is exactly like Taylorism from the 1900s. So a century later, we've gotten back to the same solution, better technology. The desks are a little bit nicer, less clunky, and no clacking from a typewriter. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. It's the same thing. It's the right? same model. One thing I want to talk about here that I think is really interesting is often we will compare the workplace and the products that we specify to the workplace to beer because it's understandable to most people. So if you think about Bud Light, which is universally the same, if you're in Seattle, Washington and you open a Bud Light or if you're in Stowe, Vermont and open a Bud Light, they're going to taste the same. For many people, that's reassuring. They want to have that consistent quality. For others, especially emerging populations today, they want to have a unique experience, which is why we have so many craft breweries popping up. The uniqueness is special, and that's a very different mindset. Yeah, I mean, I think I would say, too, that if you use the craft beer as an example, you could also think about living in a city, uh, units are getting smaller because your shared spaces are getting bigger. So what you actually need at your essence is a kitchen, a bathroom, a shower. That'd be nice, right? <laughs> but outdoor space is not an abundance in a city. So you have these other shared amenities. We're in the building that I live in. One of our shared amenities is a podcast room. Right. And so there's sort of this oscillation in the same way that you're uh, giving up maybe some of the real estate that you typically could lay claim to and a home that you would have expected in the 80s or living in the suburbs, and you trade it in for something else. Shared space, access, smaller footprint, more affordable. To me, what's interesting is how we go about getting to what that unique solution is. Is it something that the architect or interior designer or product designer decides? Or are we shaping that experience by working individually with each client. I think this is where it gets really interesting. So my background is working with civic and public clients, doing a lot of community engagement. Anytime that you have a publicly funded project, your client, yes, is the direct city agency that holds the funding, but really your client at the end of the day is the public. And so in Chicago, it's really nice as an architect to be working in public projects because at the end of the day, you're also one of the clients. Mm -hmm. So you have some autonomy and agency in the voice of talking about what the outcome is. I think the same could then be said about workplaces. If you're not engaging all of these different voices, these different audiences, these different types of people early enough in the process, you sort of missed the entire point of creating not a flexible solution, but a solution that someone can take some sense of ownership over and morph and manipulate into their own. You talk about cities and how cities attract people and how the public should have a say in how these spaces are shaped. Can you talk a little bit about the idea of difference and how when you're designing one of these public spaces, in order for it to be understood, it has to be less than the consistency everywhere else. I think what you're talking about is placemaking. Like, how does this space come alive with the activation of human beings? There is a core, there is a shell, which is the same sort of shell that modernism talked about. You have a base framework 
from which things can happen within. And I think when you're talking about a public space, that's the discussion of how does this thing come alive through activation 365 days a year, 24 hours a day. I think when you're talking about a workspace, arguably the conversation is the same. Your scale is just different. And the levers that you have to pull in terms of activation just have a different framework that you're sort of working through. There are a different scale of activities that are occurring in that place. If we were to compare the Riverwalk here in Chicago, which is an active space, there are, functionally, there might be food that supports it, there might be recreation, there might be respite, there might be athletic activities occurring along that space. All of those activities inform the space and how it's designed. In the same way, in the workspace, we're beginning to think of it as a destination, right? But the, the scale of the activities is very different. So there you're interfacing maybe through technology or you're having one-on-one -on -one conversations or there could be large group collections or bringing lots of people together. Yeah, I mean, you just listed respite, um, exercise, food. Those are things that all exist in an office as well. They're just at a different scale. Yes. And I think that that's sort of, I'm not going to say that it's a revolutionary way to think, but there are lessons to be learned from the way that public space is created and the way in which it attracts people. That's the existential question that every owner, every company is asking themselves. How do we get people to come back to the office? Because we know there's a connection between productivity, between collaboration, between innovation, and people being in person. But we also know there's a connection to better harmony between your personal life and your work life of having time aside, having time at home to work. So what is this new balance? What is this new ingredient that's going to make this successful? And I think it goes back to well, why would you even want to be in the office in the first place? If you're not answering that question at its purest essence, you're probably asking the wrong question. A lot of the jobs that occur can be done independently. They don't necessarily require constant collaboration or the need to use any kind of specialized equipment. You can use your personal computer and no special lighting's needed. You just, whatever you have there, you can do your work. But ask yourself that question though, in even let's say January of 2020, I think the response and the answer would have been dramatically different because everyone felt only can you access that in an office space. But we were all proved wrong very quickly that you can do a lot of this anywhere, really. I mean, yes, at home, that's where most of us have been for a long time, but you do it in a coffee shop, in a third space, you could do it on a plane, you could do it in another country. I mean, there's sort of this now nomadic relationship that we have to, let's call it an HQ, some sort of central place in which you convene. I think there are generational differences, clearly. I know for myself as a very, very, very young baby boomer, I have a different idea of what's effective. It's informed by experience. I have 30-some years of experience in a workplace that is that was a certain way, and I don't know what the future beholds, but I do know how those experiences, which of those experiences were effective and which were not. So I can say working in isolation in a cube was not effective. That actually occurred for me 
in about a six-month period in 1998, it was not pleasant. And I know that many people have worked out of that kind of an environment for years and years, and there's a whole subculture that's sort of looks back and critiques that. Generationally, I've had to adjust my thinking to recognize that technology can be very effective. I think I was skeptical. The other side of the coin is you don't know what you don't know or what you haven't experienced. So for someone who's emerging, let's say a Gen Z or someone who is just getting out of college, these people, they don't have life experience that can help them make a decision about what's the right thing to do. So in many ways, we need to be exploring these areas and developing policy, new policies on how we want to accomplish this. And to me, what's interesting is if we go back to the craft brewery discussion, to me, each organization will have their own specific and unique answer that supports their culture. So there are cultures of quality. Those quality cultures require certain methodologies to be in place, certain processes to be in place. There are cultures that drive innovation. That's a culture that might be much more disruptive than a culture of quality. And how can we as designers create an environment that will work for each individual organization? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that there's this understanding or at least a newfound recognition that instead of, let's say, policy and creating pairing policy with architecture and design space, it's not top down anymore. I think that back to the sort of engagement analogy that I was sharing about public space, I think that's a huge disruptor to the way that design has typically happened. Not because of anyone's ill intent, it's just the way that procurement has always happened. And so now we are in the space of really truly understanding that the employee voice has an amazing amount of value in articulating what that crafted essence is, what that unique culture is like. Culture isn't designed in a vacuum. You have to have people in order to have a culture. And in the absence of either of those things, you have nothing. <laughs> so how do you then create this sort of back and forth conversation, something gives and something takes? There was a phrase that an architect said the other day that it's not a tombstone. There isn't an end point to this. There isn't an end point to an office that's designed. It's a learning lab. There's something meant to be evolving and exploratory about this moving forward. When we were talking about the history of the office, we talked a bit about Taylorism and action office and going to benching. We didn't get to the discussion on ball pits and um, ping pong tables. I think it's appropriate that we talk about that. So in the Y2K era, we were trying to find ways to reward people for working hard. And attract. And... The answer in response to the vanilla cube or the universal solution was to add fun, amenities that were fun. Well, and one could argue that that sort of happened out of Silicon Valley. If you're looking at the dot-com boom, you have companies starting left and right much more quickly than they ever were before. 
access to capital was much easier to get to. Access to ideas and the ability to scale an idea quickly, whether it be an intangible thing like a website where maybe you sold stuff or a tangible thing that you sold in a store. Like that dramatically shifted within the last 30 years, specifically sort of in the Y2K era. And I think that then there sort of became this obsession of looking at a Google and saying, oh, well, that looks really fun. They're keeping people there. Look how innovative they are. Look how quickly they're growing. And you're not looking at their entire recipe. (laughs) You follow a recipe and you're just saying, well, if we take all these things, we'll get the same output. This isn't like baking, though. If you don't have the same product or you don't have the same culture, you don't have the same policies in place, something else is going to come out at the end of this. And I think that that's where benching paired with, you know, a ping pong table um, was the equation for a while. As soon as we started entering pre-pandemic, right, in those sort of 2018, 2019, early 2020, there was already a realization, you know, something's not quite right here. This isn't quite working the way that we thought it would. Our, Our recipe didn't produce the baked good that we wanted. And the pandemic just totally accelerated our realization that it wasn't working. Coming out of the pandemic, we began to talk about creating three types of space. One would be your headquarters in a different way. Two would be your home where you can do certain types of work. And then three is a third space that's manifest through a variety of different types of spaces that augment the other two. Let's talk a little bit about the headquarters. What is the future headquarters? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, too, that I think what's interesting with sort of the language and the hierarchy that you just laid out that's sort of captured within WSA's Flex is a recognition that it's not about having those types of environments in an urban setting or a suburban setting. There's sort of this agnostic approach to its location. But if you have the equation of those types of environments, there is the opportunity for it to thrive. And I think that that's where... The concern comes from, at least for me, about saying, okay, how do I replicate what Google's doing or how do I replicate what someone else is doing? Well, there's a lot of other contextual clues that you're missing out on. The journey between your individual residence and Google's headquarters. Exactly. Or all of those different types of experiences. Everything is interdependent or each piece influences the other. And so I think... We all read the articles throughout the pandemic that said, oh, the office is dead. We're never going to go back to work. One that's sort of paired with a lot of other fears that we had as a culture. There's a lot of cultural influence in that. But I think if we are going to say that the evolution of the current office was heavily influenced by the tech sector, or let's say Google, if you look at what Google's been doing recently, they just opened their first purpose-built campus in San Jose, but it's their first purpose-built campus. That's wild to think about a hermit crab of a company that has nearly 200,000 or 135,000 employees. This is the first time that they've ever designed something very specific to their culture. And then you look and say, well, it's 2022 and they just opened these new buildings. That's quite the commitment to millions of square feet and their HQ being Silicon Valley. You look then to Chicago, Google just signed on to buy an amazing postmodernist building here in the city, the Thompson Center, designed by Helmut Jahn. 1.2 million square feet will be the home for 2,000 Google employees. Again, that's another commitment to office space. So office space isn't dead if we're going to take the barometer of following where Google's going. The interesting thing about the Thompson Center is 
it is such an iconic building and it's definitely memorable and it will be a destination. So Google has space in Fulton Market as well. And will this be paired with that, do you believe? I think it will be. And I think what's interesting, too, if you use that as an example, Google launched the West Loop. They took what was a cold storage facility, so a giant masonry building without any windows that was with feet of thick ice for the meat producers that were in the West Loop, the meat production center for the city. And they turned it into an office space in a place that no one would have ever thought of. Now it's the hottest neighborhood in the city, never slowed down during the pandemic. So there's sort of this where Google goes, maybe so does the world. Let's not sort of put our money on that necessarily, but there is something to be said about that placemaking character of the West Loop or the placemaking character that the Thompson Center has, this true attraction. Well, when I think of the Loop, I think of just a few buildings, actually. You know, you, I think of the Board of Trade. I think of the Thompson Center. I think of the Federal Plaza with the Mies van der Rohe buildings. I think of Daly Plaza. There are a few iconic places in the loop. And for us not to do anything with those spaces to make them relevant would be a tragedy. So I'm very excited about the potential for Google to make a place in the loop that begins to provide examples of how we can repopulate the loop and bring new vitality and energy to the urban core in a different way. It's gonna be different, right? To me, that building will definitely be an active destination. And unlike an office space, which feels more tactical, this will be very active. I mean, when you walk in the building, it's a huge atrium. There are elevators going up and down that you can see the materiality of the space. It almost sparkles and glistens with reflective surfaces and lots of color and light. So that's a very different type of environment than a warehouse in the meatpacking district. So in many ways, they're modeling this idea of diverse places where people can go as a destination. And they're kind of providing the, a pluralistic response to the future of the office. Totally. Maybe if we can take a divergent path really quickly to talk about nodes. So the way that a Chicago works, for instance, you're surrounded by suburbs. You may live in the suburbs because you could get more bang for your buck. You may be moved there for your children's education. You may have moved there because it's more bucolic and not as busy. And then you commute into the city. And so there's sort of this density shift and this back and forth, this transaction that takes place as someone commuting. The same could be said, though, let's say in Columbus, the nodes are different, but they serve a similar purpose. Could you talk a little bit about sort of like nodal suburbanism? And then I'll tie the point back in a minute. Yeah, so in a city like Columbus, there isn't as much autonomy or dominance of the central city. There's more of an equivalent to the various nodes. So there might be 10 or 15 nodes that are more at the scale of a neighborhood. Some of them are uh, suburban in the way that they've been anchored by office building complexes or shopping venues. But they're definitely themed in relationship to some form of memorable experience. 
it's much more of a a network. It's a it's a fabric. It, it's like a city that's a fabric instead of a spoke and a wheel. So Chicago historically has been very spoke and wheel, where you have the central loop that is a destination, and everybody just moves in and out like you described. Columbus is much more where you might be actually moving from a node on the northeast side to a node on the northwest side and never even experience the center city. And when you come to Columbus, people, where is everybody? Because it doesn't have the same sense of a universal place. For me, I think it's more symbolic of the future of our cities where you can have this balance where you have the ability to have your own unique neighborhood that has everything you would need in that neighborhood. And then you can journey to other destinations in the city for different types of experiences. It could be that your HQ would be in one of those other nodes, right? In many ways, it's creating kind of this richer context. It's, it's actually sort of more like LA, uh, which, I know in the architectural and planning world, we've never really appreciated LA as much as we've appreciated New York City and Chicago and San Francisco. But I think we have to recognize that these nodal cities are gonna be actually part of the future. And relating it back to the workplace, I actually think that's in essence what we're talking about, is that the idea of a one-size-fits-all universal headquarters is pretty much going to be dead. Totally. And I think that that's what I wanted to tee you up for, is that that's where there's this really interesting mix of new spaces that get to be created, that it isn't all about a singular headquarters anymore. It's about being connected to a culture, being connected to collaboration, but maybe on a smaller scale than we're used to. It's not necessarily about having 2,000 employees gather in millions of square feet anymore. It may actually be about 2,000 employees gathering across 10 different offices two times a week or something. That's different arch- like that, That's different space. That's a different type of real estate approach than we've ever talked about before. So this is interesting that we're having this discussion today on the heels of a report that was presented to me just this morning. So we're working with a local regional insurance company and we're looking at the future of their workplace. And we sent a survey out to 850 employees, got feedback, and recognized that not many of them ever want to be in the office full-time. We've also done head counts, and we have data that was shared pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. So we had an understanding of how many people were in the building in the morning, at lunch, and in the afternoon, Monday through Friday. And we looked at it comparatively to last week or a few weeks ago. You would have an average before pandemic of 850 to 1,000 people in the building. Now, the average is 100 to 150 in the same building, in the same workspace. So the question becomes, how do we repurpose this? You own this real estate. Do we lease part of the space to a third-party tenant? Do we begin to think about the headquarters as a destination for different types of space? Is there a moment when you need to bring together 800 people or even 400? 
because we could make the headquarters be able to support that type of activity. What I'm talking about is looking at the space and matching it to intention. So if we recognize that there is a need for that type of gathering periodically, we can use the headquarters to provide that, or we could provide to do some type of an event space. So I think there's all kinds of considerations that will be coming out of the data. Now, I want to I temper this by saying the responses we got from the surveys and the statistics that we're sharing are based upon an office space that is a former model. It's not the future of the office. So I sense and I know that if we evolve that office place and we make it intentional to the future of the demand for the type of work that they need to do, we will increase the numbers of people who are utilizing the headquarters. Totally. And I think if you look at, let's say, data about Gen Z, WeTransfer comes out with an ideas report every year for their report in 2021. They talked about Gen Z pretty specifically as the future of the workforce and talked about the impacts that the pandemic had on them related to mental health and isolation are two of their biggest concerns. Their third concern is sort of financial stability. But if you just look at mental health and isolation, those are things that an office can help support and or solve to some extent. And so there is an equation that is just human nature that we all have to be very responsive to. So this is a very interesting conversation because we talk about mental health and feeling isolated. My brain goes to the 1980s when we were in action office space, but when we were in cubicles that were isolating, it was a very lonely existence. And I do believe there were mental health issues that weren't addressed at that time. Totally. And I think that now we're sort of starting to recognize or at least put more money, thought and intentionality into this idea of supporting employees beyond just production. They're not just a thing that does a task that gets us money in the door. There's a person behind that. There's a life behind that. There is personal success and journeys that they want to take. And that's sort of more of an HR perspective than necessarily a spatial condition. But there is a tie and a recognition now to the people that inhabit spaces and what the space tells them in return and how it supports them as an individual. One thing we've not really talked about is the impact technology has had. Of course, we would not have been able to do anything in a pandemic if we didn't have the ability to connect using technology. I also believe that it's changed manufacturing processes so that we can do more unique solutions. So hearkening back to our early discussion where we talked about the modern movement, universal truths, and how design was monolithic, I think in part it was underwritten by the idea that you needed to do mass production. And mass production required manufacturers to set up a line and produce the same. What's the famous saying by Henry Ford? You can have a Ford in any color as long as it's black. That has to do with consistency and not, ha you know, speed and production. I believe that in the last five to 10 years, technology interface is changing manufacturers' ability to do customs. If we look at our ability to, in my case, when I was working, at an architecture firm, we left on a Friday, got a note on Sunday, and started working remote on Monday. 
downloaded an app to your personal computer. We didn't have laptops then because laptops, ooh, revolutionary. That's sort of amazing that you're able to basically continue the work, in this case of an architecture firm, which I recognize is not the type of work that some other companies do. But that idea of mobility changed overnight. I think, though, then there's sort of a connection here of saying, well, we all want to drag people or draw people, whatever phrase you want to use, back to the office, uh, back to your HQ. We think that it's important. We think that there's value of collaboration. I think what we're now just starting to understand, too, is the value of a digital HQ. We recognized it being remote. How do you talk to each other? Where's the casual conversation happening? How do I check in with someone uh, without scheduling a meeting? Because all day is just meetings, meetings, meetings. And that parity now of a virtual headquarters and a real headquarters, I think, is sort of a parallel that we're going to have to grapple with. So we're not going to need as much physical space? Potentially. I mean, I think that that's sort of the, it's up to the cultural driver of why you get together in person. If it is just for, back to your example, a 400-person gathering twice a year or every quarter, let's say, you probably don't need to have people rattling it around in a giant office space. But if there's intentionality between what collaboration looks like, we may not see a bunch of desks. But we may see a bunch of collaboration areas. We may see a cafeteria that someone can go and hang out at. It's a third space within an HQ. You're going to see these other types of spaces that were seen as extra because they took up square footage before. But now your core square footage of desking, of every employee having dedicated square footage to their head count, you're not going to see that as much anymore. Right. So in the assessment of the data that came back from the corporate facility I referenced earlier, we looked at IFMA standards for space allocation even pre-pandemic and recognized that this workspace was totally weighted towards individual office space and the amenity space was insufficient. In a post-pandemic world, we know that that's even more inappropriate. So we don't have data that we can look to from IFMA because you know IFMA data has to be collected over a few years in order for us to be able to do a study. So a lot of us are just sort of riffing on what this will be. No one knows the true answer. And I think if someone's out there sort of preaching that they do know the answer, probably don't trust them. I think that's what we've learned generally speaking of a lot of things and a lot of change that happens. No one knows the answer. So how do you create a framework that's flexible enough that is supported from both a technology and a work from anywhere mentality, but also supporting what it is just to be human, this thirst, this craving to just interact with someone else. If it's six feet away, totally fine. And if it's not six feet away, if we're closer together, sort of really workshopping something, that's always going to exist. That's just who we are as a species. Yeah, and I think maybe the last thing we should talk about is the idea of workplace being crafted. If we have a universal truth historically and it's not worked and we have sort of an eclectic recent past, I think the future is going to be much more uniquely crafted for each user. And to me, the role of the architect and interior designer needs to be very different. We can't be necessarily the experts who come in and impose because we don't know what's right. The users are going to help dictate what's right, and we'll learn together. 
we need to be able to have spaces adapt and fluctuate or change over time. And we need to be able to accommodate the evolution of work because we don't know what the right answer is. And I think that language is shifting with this too, right? There's this idea of productivity, belonging, that's the cultural asset of it, and the ability to sort of manage stress and anxiety. These three things are phrases you probably wouldn't have heard in the 90s or the 80s. These weren't things that were at the tip of your tongue when you're talking about how to design an office. Those were not things that clients were coming to architects for, nor were architects providing clients. And I think that there's this recognition now that universalism works to a certain extent, and that because your workforce is diverse and hopefully becoming increasingly more diverse, that means that there are new systems, new approaches, new people that are providing their voice into equation that has often left them out intentionally and unintentionally. How then does design respond to that? And for the C-suite, they can see the results in the retention rates of those employees. They can see the results in the effectiveness of the work that they're doing, their sense of belonging to the organization and the passion they bring every day to engage and help the mission of the organization. And at the end of the day, those C-suites are going to end up having more profits that they can reinvest to help those workers improve, right? So there's a process of continual improvement that can occur, and a lot of it will be through lessons learned. And for me, what's another thing that's really interesting, which is a unique topic that we really haven't discussed, is the environmental impacts related to this discussion. So if we have a gazillion square feet of office space in the loop in Chicago, and we now recognize through our discussion that there will be a very different idea of an HQ, a very different idea of the way we work, where there's a shared relationship between residents, headquarters, and some kind of third space. We have to look much more creatively at the loop and other central business destinations to figure out how we can envision that space being different. So I'm really encouraged by the discussion that's occurring in Chicago about downtown residential. And I know there's a lot of downtown residences that are being constructed, especially in Fulton Market, River North, et cetera, the South Loop. But imagine us looking at buildings that were traditionally 100% office in the loop and beginning to think about them as multi-use, where there is a destination. There could be amenities like a podcast booth or many of them or whatever to help support the idea of living in that environment. And I think that's going to have to happen. It has to be broader than just looking at one organization's use of the building. I think it's back to this network. It's a network of things that allow something to thrive. And so before, the theory may have been you rent and lease a bunch of space, you design just that space and just that building, and that was enough of a drawer. That was enough of a response to the need for people to be working together and in person. That's no longer a sufficient answer. There's this equation of other pieces and moving parts, ground floor retail, street activation, being able to get to a grocery store, being able to walk to work, being able to take a bus 30 minutes to work. Those things 
are now sort of more critical than they were before. Do you think people will want to work and live in the same building? I mean, why not? If you look at the sort of model of having a shopkeeper and you live above, that was the model that supported many cities and still supports many cities around the world for centuries. If we're going to talk about pendulum swinging back the other way, why couldn't that work? Yeah, just on a different scale. Just right? on a different yep. scale, yeah. You've been listening to Workplace Crafted, a podcast brought to you by the design studios at WSA. I'm Tim Hawk. Your host and my guest this week was Ryan Gann, AIA, one of the most effective design strategists that I know. You can follow Ryan on LinkedIn or Instagram at instagan underscore zero five. Our theme music has been provided by our dear friend, Tommy Hecker, after much encouragement by Amber Aitken, who's been driving quality behind the scenes for this podcast initiative. Thank you, Tommy. We love the music. It sets the most perfect and mysterious context for all of our discussions. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to the Workplace Crafted podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram and LinkedIn at WSA Studio. Our executive producer is Ryan Gann. And thank you, thank you, thank you to our Duck Squad hero, Spencer Hawk, who's been there behind all of us demanding improvement as he produced all of the content that you heard today. Up next, we will begin to explore the process that we use at WSA to collect criteria, which can often lead our teams down the path to design excellence. Joining us will be Marcella Smith, a leader with Ohio Mutual Insurance Company, Troy Brummel, a WSA alum, and Jess Hammond, a design manager with WSA. Thank you for tuning in, and we look forward to our next time together on Workplace Crafted.